three. You're listening to Sports Talk Chicago with your host, John Zaglul. John, I am fantastic. Thank you for having me. You got an awesome voice, man, and that was a terrific <laughs> intro. You're like a pro's pro. You know, that was the first time somebody ever said that, John. No, you're the first person to ever say anything like that. That's, that's very interesting. You got it, John. Anything for a fellow Chicago guy? <laughs> well, what a great question. That's a great question. Nobody's actually asked me that. <laughs> I like it. What a great question. I never heard that before. Chase, wait, wait, Chase Sully is what? You're saying he's not a Hall of Fame candidate? You know, it's it's funny. I, I, You may be the only person that I've heard make that connection. Thank you, John, for having me. I'm doing great. By the way, you have an outstanding voice. I'm not sure about your face because I haven't met you, but your voice is great. You're doing a much better job than I ever did. You've had some heavy hitters uh, guests on too, man, so keep up the good work, but it's good to be with you, and I'm ready to talk sports. Hello, everybody, and welcome in to Sports Talk Chicago. My name's John Zaglul. Great to have you here. Today's edition of the program, the Bears have a new wide receiver. What will he do for Justin Fields? We'll explain in just a moment. Plus, a brand new interview today with Tim Brando, a national college football broadcaster for Fox. We talk with him extensively about UCLA and USC, leaving to the Big Ten, some college football playoff news, and so much more. It's a great interview, and it comes your way near the midway point of this show. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at John Z Sports and on Facebook at John Zagluel. You can watch more of this show. Search up Sports Talk Chicago, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, SportsTalkChicago.com. Now, before we start today, I'd like to be transparent with all of you. I was not taking a break or taking a hiatus or quitting. I had some surgery, some oral surgery in my mouth. That caused me to be away for a prolonged period of time, certainly a time that I'm not accustomed to. I'm not used to just sitting around. (laughs) I like to work. I like to provide you with content and videos and things to watch, stories to hear from people I interview, too. And believe me when I say this, it sucked to not provide anything, to be gone for a long period of time, to be recovering, to be in bed, to come back to work and not be able to talk right, not be able to deliver when a big news story came out. It sucked. It hurt. But there's one thing that I learned throughout this entire process of sitting on the sidelines. I have great fans. All of you are just warm, kind-hearted people. All of you who consume my content, watch my videos. I got so many direct messages, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, from all of you asking how I'm feeling, how I'm doing, when the next video is going to come out. All had genuine concern. You know, I learned this while being out. Views don't matter. They don't. Subscriber count does not matter. Likes, dislikes, comments, none of it matters. None of it. You know what matters? The relationships that are developed and curated by providing you with a sports program. Even sports, at the end of the day, are just a game. It's just a game. It's just a way for all of us to socialize a bit, talk a little bit more. But it's just a game. It's not important. What is important, though, are relationships. Friendships, dare I say. And it really touched me to see the outpouring of support, the outpouring of concern... The outpouring of simply, we miss you, come back, and we're going to be here when you are back. It really had a profound effect on me. Everybody says I got the best fans in the world. Every host, even players, other people always say that, but I genuinely feel that I do. All of you care. All of you are great people. 
the conversations that I've had with some of you on direct messaging or even YouTube, going back and forth in the comment section or on Twitter, I enjoy them a lot. And that is certainly motivation for me to continue with what I'm doing. Just thank you from the bottom of my heart for being patient, for being understanding of the situation, and for still consuming my content even though I wasn't making anything new. The numbers were huge. Not that it matters, but still. I'm grateful for all of you for being in my life, for supporting this program, for supporting its potential growth still. And I'm very happy to say that I'm back. Maybe you didn't miss me. I don't know. Maybe some of you subscribe for the sheer purpose of hatred. <laughs> Whatever it might be, though, I am back. I'm happy to be back. And I hope that all of you realize whether I'm right or wrong on sports opinions, whether we are in agreement or disagreement on them. Cherish the relationships in your life. First and foremost, cherish the relationships. Views, likes, comments, retweets, shares. It doesn't matter. Make a human connection. I certainly feel that way when it comes to you and I and our viewing experience and our relationship together. And I pray personally that it only continues to grow. So thank you for the bottom of my heart for being understanding and patient and concerned. And I'm very happy to be back. I want to start today, though, with this. In the time that I have been gone, the Bears have not done too much. They've been rather quiet, understandably so. Talking about June, July, what's there to talk about when it comes to Bears football? We can hear a story here, a story there. Oh, this guy's going to be great, or this expert says this about the Bears and this specific player. All of it's just talk, all of it's rumors, all of it's like celebrity gossip. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like the paparazzi going around taking pictures of the Kardashians. Who cares? Games aren't being played. There are no actions that are being done or followed through upon. Training camp hasn't even started yet. We have to wait at least another one to two weeks to get there. There is one thing, though, that I can say with certainty. One thing that I've noticed that's been done, or rather hasn't been done, that should be done. Justin Fields has no wide receivers. Now you're probably thinking, John, we already know this, and it's true. But even yesterday, with their new acquisition from New England, Nikhil Harry, my response is, is that the best you could do? I know the Bears are rebuilding. I know they're not in the position to spend tons of money. Here's my counter. How can you correctly evaluate Justin Fields? I really want you to listen up and hear this list of wide receivers that the Bears have. This is from my sports update on Twitter. Current Bears wide receiver room. Darnell Mooney. Phyllis Jones Jr. Byron Pringle. Nikhil Harry. Dante Pettis. Tajay Sharp. St. Brown. Moore. Coulter Webster. Daz Newsom. Chris Fink. And Kevin Shaw. What the hell? WTH. My heart sank when I read that list and looked at it. What is this supposed to be? Is this the CFL? <laughs> is this semi-professional football? That's my question. Is this arena league football? That nag is a legend there. Is that what it is? That's what it sounds like to me. How could you sit here and tell me I know Justin Fields is going to be great this year, or likewise he won't be. And say, I can evaluate him based on these names and these wide receivers that are being trotted out there on his behalf to help him. Give me a break. The Bears yesterday acquired Nikhil Harry from New England. Here's a quote from Josina Anderson on the trade. 
A source says they believe, quote, sometimes a change of scenery is necessary for Harry. The belief is that Harry will add to the competition at the position, and the hope is that he'll continue to develop when they pour resources into him. Harry's career track record is questionable at best. 598 receiving yards in three years in New England. Last year started actually four games. Only had 184 yards total. Look, I get the premise of the move. I get it. You're taking a swing. This guy is unproven. He could be a diamond in the rough. This is like Kevin White if the Bears had acquired him. It's like when the Saints acquired Kevin White. Okay, great. Former first-round pick. Has some of the physical attributes and intangibles. Maybe he'll work in this system, in this change of scenery. But what do you think's really going to happen here? Let's be honest. What kind of a move is this? This is a budget move just to add to the wide receiving room. A crappy wide receiving room. Will Nikhil Harry be the Bears' leading wide receiver? Hell no! There is no way. I don't care who you're trying to convince. It's not going to happen. At all. This was just a move to make a move. There was really little meaning behind this. And I understand the Bears are strapped when it comes to the cap, and they're not ready to win. I know. I get it. Believe me. I've said this for months. The fact is, though, I just don't understand how you could properly evaluate Justin Fields or claim, yes, he's a bust, or yes, he's not, when he has no weapons to help himself. I read you that list. Look at this list. Darnell Mooney, Vilas Jones Jr., Byron Pringle, Nikhil Harry, Dante Pettis, Jane Sharp, St. Brown, Moore, Coulter, Webster, Newsom, Fink, Shaw. What? <laughs> what is that? That sounds like Arena Football League wide receivers. A list of them. You cannot expect Justin Fields or any quarterback, for that matter, to succeed with that wide receiving room. And that's why I'm going to be very lenient on fields for this year. That doesn't mean I'm not going to call out mistakes. If he bumbles the football, that's a problem. If he throws too many picks, that's a problem. If he gets sacked too much because he's indecisive and can't throw the football in time, that's a problem. But if he throws for 300 yards or 200 yards and goes 16 of 30 and there are 10 drops, that's not his fault. That's not his fault. This year, when we all evaluate Justin Fields, believe it or not, numbers are not going to tell the whole story. And I'm a big numbers guy. I love numbers, but they're not going to tell the whole story. What will tell the story, though, is who was in, how many snaps did they play, how many drops did they have, how many yards after the catch did they accrue? Were they effective, not just Fields? You want to properly look over fields and evaluate whether or not he's done good, do that first. Do that first. It's not going to be, oh, Justin Fields only threw for 3,000 yards and his completion percentage was 57%. What's the context of those numbers? Well, it's pretty self-explanatory. Look at this list of wide receiver. Look at this core of players. It's self-explanatory. Numbers usually tell the truth. I love numbers. I think they're the best way to determine how good a player is, even better than the eye test at times. But in this case, what I'm trying to say here is that evaluating Justin Fields doesn't just mean looking at the numbers. And this trade yesterday really put a magnifying glass on that. I'm not going to sit here and criticize Justin Fields for a 58% completion percentage when he's thrown to Darnell Mooney, Bellis Jones Jr., Pringle, and then from there it's Harry, Pettis, Sharp, St. Brown, Moore. Who the hell are these people? Doesn't matter. Justin Fields deserves real wide receivers. It's not too much to ask, in my opinion. I know they're not spending right now, but then don't turn around and say, well, Justin Fields had a crappy year. Well, who was he throwing to? Who? Who are some of these people? Never heard of them. 
This is like Arena League football. Semi-pro. He had better wide receivers at Ohio State than he does right now. That's not even a controversial opinion. It's the truth. So my point is, as far as the trade goes, I could take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. But Justin Fields needs real weapons. I'm going to keep pounding this storyline because it's true. What does he have? What does Justin Fields have to work with? If you were a quarterback in your second year, new offense, new head coach, would you like to throw to these wide receivers? Would you feel confident in even going out on the field? No, you're going to be throwing to them. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be excited to throw to this. I don't know what this is at all. That's the problem. So when you ask me how I feel about this trade yesterday, I'd say, huh, who cares? Because that's the truth. Who knows if Harry will even be on the opening day roster? And if he is, good for him. I just don't see it. What are you going to get out of him? And more importantly, we're going to sit here and whine and dine and make trades. How about you trade for a real wide receiver, somebody that can actually help out Justin Fields a bit? It was a low-risk, high-reward move, and that's fine, and it fits with Poles' M.O. I'm not mad about that. I just wish, in general, when we talk about wide receivers, when we say, hey, the Bears acquired another wide receiver, there's a connotation behind it. It makes it sound as if, oh, they're helping out Justin Fields, they're prioritizing the position. They're not. I read you these names. Would you like to throw to any of them besides Mooney, obviously, maybe Jones? Everybody else? It's a toss-up. And more often than not, it's a toss-up in the wrong direction. That's the point. This is not an anti-Ryan Poles argument. This is not an anti-what-the-bears-are-doing argument. I know they're rebuilding. I'm not stupid, but... Don't turn around and say, well, Justin Fields sucked this year. He had a 58% completion percentage, or... He threw too many picks, and all those picks were batted out of people's hands. We really have to watch Justin Fields to evaluate him. We have to watch him with our eyes. Numbers are not going to tell the story. That's the point. Numbers will most definitely not tell the story. We have to keep that in mind when we evaluate Justin Fields. I would hope that before Game 1, Poles makes more moves to... Do something for him. I mean, right now, there's really nothing for Fields to work with. If not, expect a somewhat tough year. Yes, Fields is going to have to really adjust on the fly to this ragtag group of wide receivers. It's going to be tough. I'm all for what the Bears are trying to do. I hope it works out. I want to see winning good football. But any time the Bears acquire a wide receiver or make a move, and then we see the media saying, hey, they're trying to help out Justin Fields, they're not. This is not helping anybody, except maybe Harry, if he catches on here in Chicago. It's not helping out Justin Fields. It's not prioritizing him. So next time before you say that, look at who the Bears are actually acquiring and see how it aligns with what Justin Fields needs to do to be a successful NFL QB. The reviews are in. Amish Country Farms is the place to be. Cute store, friendly staff, and amazing products, says Jessica. Highly recommend trying the milk, says Dan. So nice to have real homemade food so close to home, says Nicole. It's true. All of our food is locally sourced from the Amish of northern Indiana. It's fresh, authentic, and tastes out of this world. Visit our store today at 17843 South Wolf Road in Orland Park, or give us a call at 708-864-8100. Amish Country Farms. It's not organic, it's Amish. Sports Talk Chicago. Here for John Zaglorla, and we are back and ready for today's special guest. He's a college football broadcaster for Fox Sports and a 40-plus year sports media veteran. Please welcome Tim Brando to the program. Tim, it's great to have you on. How are you? Thank you, John. It's good to be with you. What's wrong with college football right now, Tim? (laughs) 
Actually, John, I, I don't think a lot is. I, I'm actually getting a lot of pushback from people wanting me to say that this is a disgrace. And, I, uh, you know, look, I, I'm one that was always a proponent of breaking away from the NCAA. I was one that felt that um, college football was leaving a lot of money on the television table. Uh, now some steps are being made to make sure that that, that cheese is made and that uh, we get better games and we get a better postseason. I think all of this that's happening are, um, in a lot of ways, growing pains that's, that's brought on from years of neglect. Uh, the NCAA didn't do what it needed to do with either uh, NIL or the transfer portal. Either one of those would have been uh, tough enough uh, had they happened by themselves. And instead, they happened simultaneously. Um, college sports is in grave need of, of revenue streams, particularly in the wake of COVID and in the wake of players uh, now being a lot more intelligent and saying, hey, hey, what about us? We want some <laughs> money too. And, um, you know, NIL, uh, as it relates to the way it's actually been structured across the board, is not nearly as negative a thing as the media would have you believe. Um, you know, what happened with um, the young man, Jernigan, from Pitt going to to SC, it wasn't really about NIL. He he had a year left. He wanted to improve his stock. Uh, and SC with Lincoln Riley was a good place to go. And the fact that he's going to make a hell of a lot of money, well, NIL is in play now. The kid's a, a senior. So he's only got one year to really make it. So why not? Why, why should we be upset with the fact that he is? Um, I think that was overblown. Um, but we do need to calm the waters, so to speak, of uh, name, image, and likeness. And uh, because we do have unrestricted free agency with no salary cap. And uh, that, that was certainly not what the intention of the NCAA was when they said we'll allow for name, image, and likeness. And they did so kicking and screaming. You know, they, they went to the Supreme Court this time a year ago. The Supreme Court voted them down 9 nothing. Was like, what are you thinking? Uh, they, the NCAA was just asleep at the switch for you know a long time, and I think that this was proof to the commissioners of college football that we need to get the hell away from the NCAA. And this is the first significant step of that. Uh, I'm not saying it won't be in existence. The NCAA has a purpose, particularly with the men's basketball tournament. It helps uh, fund all of the non-revenue producing sports championships. Uh, it certainly knows how to handle Division two and three college football and, and the NAIA to go along with, um, uh, you know, those that are competing at the FCS level. Uh, that's good. Uh, that's what they need to govern. College football Division one has outgrown the NCAA. And uh, these schools and conferences now, they want to have people that are in their world impacting and governing their sport you know not some division two uh women's soccer coach being on the football rules committee and and that happens by the way in, in the past it's it's crazy uh but it happens so i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about much of what's gone on and will go on because a lot of people in the media either a don't understand how college football at the division one level evolved uh, and some of them just frankly don't like college football and they're looking to find something else, some, some other new way to throw a grenade its way. Uh, but, but I think college football is going to be just fine. Which team shift was the most surprising to you that you saw? Well, I think the timing of what USC and UCLA did surprised everyone, but I'm not surprised. Okay. Am I surprised at the timing? Yes. Um, but, but was I surprised that, that it happened the way it did? Sure, because it's hard to keep a secret now. <laughs> and uh, clearly the people I work for at Fox can keep a secret. We, we figured that one out. Um, and, 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 but I, at the same time, uh, the impact of, of what they did, USC and, 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 and UCLA, has such a broad and seismic impact on the entirety of the sport because now we literally have a bunch of schools at a lot of different conferences that are waiting with bated breath for Notre Dame to make up its mind as to whether they're going to go in a league or not. 
And until they make a decision, I don't think anything will happen. Uh, Notre Dame holds the cards, whether they decide to stay, uh, stand pat as an independent or uh, take that money, which is going to be significantly more revenue from the Big Ten than they currently have as an independent with NBC. That, that, that's the decision. Uh, I've always felt that Notre Dame uh, had an opportunity for its cake and, it, and the chance to eat it, too, financially. Uh, this is that ultimate call because we're talking over a hundred million in television revenue. That, you know, that's that's more than even Notre Dame as an independent can command. Um, and Swarbrick knows that, so it's really up to Jack to determine what they're going to do. By the way, to a bigger point, a larger point, since I mentioned Jack Swarbrick, he, along with um, uh, Greg Sankey and uh, Craig Thompson, who's the commissioner of the Mountain West and outgoing commissioner Bob Bowlesby of the Big 12, they were the quartet that organized and did all the research on expanding the playoff format. And they, 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 they brought to everyone within the CFP their proposal to go to 12 schools uh, for the playoff. Interestingly, the two guys that voted against it, George Klyavkov, the commissioner of the Pac-12, and Jim Phillips, the commissioner of the ACC. Now, tell me which conferences need an expansion of the playoff more than those two. <laughs> that why that I mean, they wonder why they're in the position they're in. They can look in the mirror because that was a poor uh, decision that they made. Um, we're ultimately, and this is the other great part about what's happening, when these new TV deals are all done, uh, and the Big Ten is first. Big 12 and Pac-12 come after that. Uh, and who knows? We may have some form of merger or cannibalization that I don't know about, but from one league to the other, it could be two deals or it might be one. Who knows? But once those deals are done uh, and the college football playoff contract comes up for 2026, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind we're going to go to at least 12 teams. Uh, we will get a 12-team playoff. And again, that's another great thing about what's happening here. We need to college football needs to reclaim the month of December away from the NFL, and they need to reclaim New Year's Day away from everything. And um, putting together a 12 team playoff with that much more television inventory and potentially a, a, a network deal with two, not one network, uh, can help the sport mightily. A little bit of the NFL blueprint in terms of how you deal with television is a good thing for college football. Uh, but this notion that we're turning it into the Premier League, it's the big two, and then everybody else is crumb. No, we're no, we're we're going to see the same 64, 65 teams playing at the highest level of college football, and we'll still see some teams like a Cincinnati when they were in the the American Conference. Who knows what team it might be in the future? But teams out of the American or the Sun Belt or the Mountain West will still have a chance. Uh, to make their case. And, and frankly, if they do with 12 teams, there's no way you can keep them out. You know, with four teams, you could, but with 12, there's no way you can keep a team like that from being in the postseason. And Brando here on sports talk, Chicago, amazing insight, Tim, on this playoff. What's your response to those who say it's going to be watered down. If you add 12 teams, How do you know who, who annoyed you Nostradamus. <laughs> okay. Uh, to the contrary, I think I think having more teams uh, with opportunities and for those schools that would fall into the category of being seated somewhere between seven and twelve. Okay, uh, it would be huge because the opening round would go back to the campuses. Okay, the the top four teams get because of college football's regular season and it mattering. Right, those first four teams get buys. So you have six playing 11 at the home site of number six, seven playing and so on. Okay. Seven playing 12, six, 11, and so on and so forth. And if a team like that wins one game, it's like a national title to, to that school uh, and excitement. And what if a team gets hot? Uh, it, it's true in all sports. Sometimes a week off, brings rust to one of the top seeds and a team that just played well the week before has got a lot of mojo working. And, um, it also bring a lot of fans that ordinarily would never be that keen on watching a college football game to the, 
the, the televisions. You know, we'd have a lot more eyeballs on college football if we incorporated a system that brought all of our nation's geography into the mix. And that's what's been missing. Uh, college football has been, especially during the CFP era, a rust belt, sun belt only need apply postseason. You know, Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, a form of LSU. I mean, someone like either, you know, name your name your two SEC schools, throw in Clemson and Ohio State, and that's basically who you're going to get. And that kind of boredom uh, around the rest of the country with no one else really being involved uh, is not good for the sport. If, if I can tell you in July or August who the four teams are going to be and be right on three of them, that's not good. Okay, that that was like picking uh, the NBA Eastern and Western Finals teams for 15 years. And the NBA has gone to hell. So why would you want to do that? And that's what college football has done. And I think this is going to open it up and bring some fresh people to the party. You've been around the game for 40 years. Have you ever expected this sort of shift in college football from when you started to today? Yeah, I did. In fact, I talked about it. People thought I was out of my mind. You know, <laughs> I, 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 so much of this, I would I, when I was working at ESPN, we started game day back in 1987. That was 35 years ago. Um, I, I told this to Bino, and he was, oh, Brad, oh, you're out of your mind. It might help. It'll be after I die. It might happen while you're still alive. You know, and I was like, yeah, I think it will. And uh, in my my days at uh, CBS, when the godforsaken BCS was put in play, and I uh, just absolutely annihilated it. I was the self-proclaimed antichrist of the BCS. Uh, (laughs) Same was true. I just thought, okay, fine. One is playing two. So you got the Big Ten and the Pac-12 involved. Right. Because in the past, due to the Rose Bowl, that you could never get those two together. We had those so-called split titles all the way up until the um, the USC one with uh, LSU in 2003. Uh, I was like, this is not, you know, it's, how do we know? It's still two teams and these computers. Do we know who's running these computers? We later found out that half of them were were biased because they were. They were set up in Virginia, and oh, by the way, Virginia Tech is number one in that poll. (laughs) Come on. So uh, it was less than forthright, okay, some of what was going on, even with the BCS. And uh, frankly, I still believe the formula they used, the BCS, was better than this this committee of people just looking at teams as though they're in a beauty pageant on a runway – uh, telling me that this or that team is just better because, well, I just think so, you know, really, that, that's what you think. Um, that was even worse. So uh, and actually, if you think about the BCS, Boise State really had a chance a couple of times and missed field goals, or they could have crashed the party big time. In the CFP, there was no chance for a team like Boise State uh, until – uh, Cincinnati got a huge break last year, not only winning every game, but also having Oklahoma State, a one-loss team in the power conference, lose to B- to Baylor. Uh, that opened the door. There's no doubt in my mind that, that Cincinnati would not have gotten in uh, had Oklahoma State won that game. So uh, we, we needed this. And so the answer to you is yes. I, um, I know this is – makes a lot of people up, up, upset with me because they feel like I'm, I should be a traditionalist. I should be, and I am in a lot of ways, uh, but I don't think we're losing rivalries and I don't think we're losing history and tradition. I don't, I, I just think we're going to get better games, more good games on TV during the regular season and a hell of a lot better postseason than we currently have. What sort of recommendations do you have to improve the playoff specifically the committee part of it? Because you mentioned that the committee is obviously uh, has its issues. Let's take some of the heat off of them. You know, let's, <laughs> let's let teams earn their way in. If you have 12 teams, let's, Hey, go out and win something. Okay. Win your championship. However you want to determine it, whether it's through the best team in the regular season or your championship game, if it's a championship game with two teams from two different divisions or, 
most most leagues now are getting away from the divisional thing and going with their top two teams, which I think is smart. But win something, okay? And then after you have the champions of those leagues, then you allow for, especially with 12 teams, you allow for the best two teams from non-power conferences, okay? And let's, for argument's sake, say um, that we only have um, four conferences instead of five, okay, by the time we get to uh, these new television deals. Let's say there's some sort of deal made between the Big 12 and the Pac-12, some kind of merger of some sort, so that they kind of come together and you still have an ACC. The, the, the ACC held on to what they needed to, although I'm not sure that they will, but they have a TV deal that lasts a long time and a grant of rights that lasts a long time. So let's say they hold on to Clemson, Florida State, Miami, and all those schools. So those four those four league champions are, are in, okay? Uh, and then we, we say of the – the other conferences that are left between the American, uh, the Sun Belt, uh, the Mountain West, and the MAC, let's say the the top team from that group, the highest rated team from that group is locked in. Okay, the the, the version of Cincinnati of this year that that the, the best team of that group would be automatically in highest ranked champion of a group of five or group of four remaining conferences all right whatever that is and then we have wild cards okay those wild cards can come from anywhere you figure the sec would gobble up maybe one possibly two big 10 the same uh you know a team that got hot the second half of the year maybe dropped the game early you know what wasn't playing as great uh in the beginning of the season as they were at the end uh has a chance to get in and really mess things up you know and make it fun um there are several teams. Think about all those great Florida State teams Bobby Bowden had through the years that lost to Miami because of a wide right, and they went out and won every other game after that but still couldn't get in the championship. Uh, I think they had a run of 14 straight years where they finished in the top five of the AP poll. 14 straight years of finishing no worse than five in the AP poll, and they only played uh, in three national championships, won two of them. So that's that's something to think about, you know, um, teams that get hot at the end of the year that you really don't want to play. That that equation never comes into the college football mindset. And now we're bringing that into it, which makes it so good for uh, new uh, fans and, and, and potential fans you're looking to attract. What do you feel like is going to be in the championship game this year, at least in the playoff? Wow. Well, you know, at the risk of sounding boring. It's the usual suspects, right? <laughs> Who's not going to vote Alabama number one and Georgia number two, uh, Ohio State three, or some version of that? You can mix and match. Those three are going to be one, two, and three. We just don't know what order. And you'd probably go with Clemson four, right? I mean, that's more than likely what you do, uh, which, again, as I said, makes it a, a classic bore. <laughs> that's why, you know, if we were debating about who's going to be, you know, it, Think about in November, if we had, uh, say, a game between Iowa and Wisconsin, always a pretty competitive Big Ten game played in November, whether the game is uh, at uh, Kinnick Stadium or if it's um, at Camp Randall, it's going to be a monster atmosphere. Those two teams are almost always ranked somewhere between 10th and 15th or 16th. You know, uh, in the past, the winner of that game might win the West right, to go play in the Big Ten title game against uh, Ohio State or Michigan, but most most likely Ohio State. Imagine that game, what, what importance it would take on, not even figuring in the Big Ten, but figuring in the national race, because you're trying to finish in the top 12. The winner of that game takes a giant step, you know, towards being in the, in the top 12. Uh, there'll be a lot of games like that in different conferences. Uh, that would mean so much more in the month of November for more people to watch television, to watch college football than we currently have. It just opens up all kinds of, of possibilities. What a come with Tim Brandow. In just a moment, stay tuned. This is Sports Talk Chicago.
Tim Brando, still here on Sports Talk Chicago. Tim, a few more questions before we finish up. First off, your career. How'd you get your start? Oh, God. Uh, you just Google me. It's all there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I started with my father in uh, 1971, called my high school, uh, high school football game on KLIC Radio in Monroe, Louisiana. I was a ninth grader. Uh, at Lakeshore Junior High in my hometown of Shreveport. My dad uh, had been in the radio and television business, helped put a couple of TV stations on the air. He bought a piece of a hotel in uh, Monroe, not far from where I went to college, uh, now known as ULM, Louisiana Monroe. It was Northeast Louisiana back then. And uh, a guy that uh, owned a radio station came to see my dad one day, heard he was in town. And said, uh, I, need you, I need some help. The guy that called Neville High School football, which was, it still is, a huge high school, dominant, powerful school in uh, the top classification of, uh, of high school football in, in our state. I uh, said, we, we need somebody. Can you help us out? And my dad, knowing how badly I wanted to be a, a play-by-play man, uh, said, sure, I'll be happy to help you out. You, you have to let me pick my, my partner, my, my second banana. My, my color analyst. And of course the guy had no idea it was going to be his 14 year old son, but it was. And, uh, so we did our first game together, captain three high school, which happened to be in my hometown in Shreveport and Neville September 10th, 1971. So, um, it's been 51 years this September 10th that I've been, you know, calling ball and I called ball. All, I, I stopped playing football in the, uh, eighth grade, uh, after I went to, to do these games in the ninth grade, I gave it up. I continued to play baseball all the way through high school, but I, I gave up playing football uh, to, to be a broadcaster, knowing that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and then a lot of good things happened for me. You know, I won a lot of uh, awards and speech and debate while I was in college or in high school to go to college and uh, started working at the NBC affiliate in my hometown my summer of my senior year of high school. And so I had a number of breaks uh, because of what I had been exposed to at a, at a very young age. I was very lucky that way. And uh, uh, by 1978, I married in 79, moved to Baton Rouge to cover LSU. That's when I began covering the Southeastern Conference and in LSU in particular. And then they started a cable uh, network of their own at Louisiana State University called Tiger Vision, uh, way ahead of its game. Uh, long before there was an SEC network thought about, there was Tiger Vision at LSU. And uh, they had an athletic director that was a real visionary, had worked with Joe Robbie at Miami with the Dolphins. His name was Bob Broadhead. And uh, brought in Jimmy Taylor and Paul Horning to do LSU football on tape. The games were live pay-per-view. You could do pay-per-view TV back then. Uh, And then you could uh, run the re-airs on the on the cable channel of Tiger Vision. And it was a statewide thing. And uh, I got to do that when I was, uh, that's 1982. So I'm 26 years old and I'm doing that. And I was working LSU basketball uh, when they were in their heyday with Coach Brown and making Final Four runs in the early 80s. And uh, got those tapes out and just started sending them away- around. And uh, in 1985, I got a call from ESPN. Uh, while I was working at the CBS affiliate in Baton Rouge, they asked me to do the Duke Virginia game on January 5th, 1985. I still have the, the uh, check stub of my first check <laughs> from ESPN working with Dickie V and uh, the game went well, it was sort of an on-air audition for me. And I kept doing all kinds of other things for them. Whenever they, they called, I answered and I'd go wherever they told me whether it was uh, football, basketball, college baseball, PKA karate, top-ranked boxing, uh, you name it, uh, I would do it. And uh, that led to me moving to Connecticut uh, in 1986, and uh, we started College Game Day right after that. As a matter of fact, people forget this, but after the 84 lawsuit, college football was finally available to cable TV in prime time live. There had been no... Uh, college football other than what you saw on the NCAA game of the week on ABC for all those years. And then uh, after the Supreme court made its ruling in 84 in 1985, 
the games were able to be televised. And I started on the sidelines as a quasi host and sideline reporter. Uh, and I worked with uh, Mike Patrick and Pat McAnally that first year. Uh, Jim Simpson and Paul McGuire had done it, I think, the year before. And, uh, and that led to me moving to Connecticut to, to host game day uh, beginning in 1987 with uh, Bino Cook and Lee Corso. And as they say, uh, the rest is history. Everything else that happened for me uh, was a byproduct of that particular time in my career. And um, I moved home, uh, but stayed with ESPN in 1990, built our house here in my hometown of Shreveport, and uh, worked with Vince Dooley in 1989 on uh, CFA football. They had the College Football Association games of the week back then. CFA was a formation of all the conferences outside of the Big Ten and the Pac-12. And uh, Notre Dame was also a part of that conglomerate. So I got to do some games at Notre Dame, too, which was a real thrill. Uh, But they asked me to come back in the studio uh, in 1990 to do halftimes in between games when Chris Fowler took over. I had left after the 88 season to, to, to do games in the booth in the fall of 89 because I was moving home. They wanted whoever was hosting uh, game day to live in, in, in Bristol. I didn't want to live in Bristol. I, I enjoyed my time there, but my wife was from my hometown. I'm a Southern boy. I really wanted to, uh, to get back home to my roots and, uh, and take control of my career a little bit and not have to worry about doing, you know, uh, two 30 AM sports center shows, uh, in, in new England, uh, during the off season. So, it was a great experience. Every experience that I had there was wonderful, but uh, I'm really glad that I took control of my career and moved home, uh, built a home on a golf course, and uh, and, and have been happy uh, ever since. And I moved on to Turner in the mid-90s, did the Braves and the Hawks, got a World Series ring out of that, uh, worked the NBA playoffs for TNT and TBS and did Inside the NBA uh, in its uh, earliest days, and then uh, over to CBS. Uh, for the NCAA tournament in 96. And all that time that I was doing stuff at Turner, I was working the SEC game of the week for Raycom Jefferson Pilot, which was a syndicator uh, that did uh, ACC and SEC for many, many years. And they were very good to me through those years. All those Duke, North Carolina games I got to do in February were courtesy of them. So um, I've I've had a blessed life. I really have. Um, I can't imagine not doing what I do. And I'm asked often how much longer you want to do it. And I'm like, as long as somebody wants me to, (laughs) because uh, it's a lot of fun. I have great passion for uh, college athletics, particularly. And on occasion, Fox will call me and say, Hey, we've got a young guy that we want to break in on some NFL. We, we think we might use him next year. We'd like to check him out. We got a game in green Bay here. Uh, Would you like to go up to Lambeau and do a game in, late December. Yeah, sure. You know, so I'll do that from time to time, but uh, college football is my passion and Spencer Tillman, as you know, and I have been together now for, gosh, we were 18 years at CBS and this is my ninth year coming up at Fox and it's his uh, eighth. So that's, um, that's a long time. We've been together now over a quarter of a century. We, we missed one year, the year I left CBS and went to Fox in 2014, I worked with Joel Klatt and Brady Quinn that year, and uh, Spencer was finishing out his contract at CBS, and he came and joined me the following year. Uh, that was when Joel went up to work with Gus, and I needed a partner, and, and uh, uh, Spencer came and joined me there. We've been connected at the hip ever since. What's the secret between your guys' chemistry and your ability to stay together for that long? Yeah, you know, we have a we call it creative tension. <laughs> it's, uh, we love one another. That's it. And it just, you know, chemistry, uh, uh, happens. It's something that's, I don't know that you can create it. I think chemistry is, is something that it, it, it is, uh, organic. It, it just happens. But once it happens and you know, you've got it now, you can have some fun with it. Now you can make it really work in your favor. And, um, he knows what I'm thinking before I say it. And I kind of have a hunch what direction he might go in. Uh, and so 
we sort of anticipate one another's moves. It's a, that classic, uh, he's the yin to my yang kind of thing that we've got going on. And uh, we have a healthy friendship, yes, but we also have a lot of things in common. Uh, Spencer wanted to be in broadcasting while he was a player, uh, so much so that he prepared for it in college. And uh, when he was uh, um, picked up as a free agent with the Oilers after winning a Super Bowl in San Francisco, he didn't think he was going to be picked up. He thought he was out of football. But Jerry Glanville wanted to bring him in for leadership purposes. And Spencer knew he had a chance to make more money as a player than he would in broadcasting. But that year, I was still working at ESPN, and uh, they had him fly to New York to do an audition with me for a potential opportunity as an analyst. Well, we did it, and we met, we met each other in New York. It went really well. Uh, but then all of a sudden, this phone rang, and it was Glanville saying, hey, 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 Channel 2, you want to come play? And so he went and picked up some major bucks for a couple of more years with the Oilers uh, in like 93, I think it was. You know, that was the team that lost the big lead to Buffalo in the playoff game. He was on that team with Jack Pardee. And uh, so he played on that team, made a little extra money, and uh, and he went over to uh, – after he completed his time with the Oilers, he was hired by WABC in New York. He was working weekends – at uh, Channel 2 and um, uh, Channel 7, I'm sure uh, I, I meant to say, Channel 7 in New York. And that was about the time I was hired at CBS. And uh, I was working with Lou Holtz and Craig James on the College Football Today. And Lou got the job at South Carolina and Craig got bumped up to the NFL today. And we needed somebody. And a new executive producer came in named Terry Ewart. And Terry knew of my work and he knew of Spencer's. And he thought Spencer would be great, not knowing that he and I already knew one another and that I had done an audition with him like five years earlier, four <laughs> years ago, something like that. And so we connected in the studio at CBS right away. Uh, he had at the time uh, three young daughters, soon to have a fourth. I had two young daughters. Uh, his wife, Rita, and my wife, Terry, became really good friends. Uh, during Thanksgiving week, our families each would come up. We'd go to the Macy's Day Parade together. We'd go to a Broadway musical or something together. We just connected as a family. And, you know, girl dads are connected. I mean, if you've got nothing but girls in your life, you kind of understand the plight of the other guy. So I think it was the friendship off the air that really funneled the chemistry on in, in many, many ways. But we met by chance uh, the first time. And we were we were He was hired to join me quite by chance. Um, so, you know, there's someone else at work there sometimes. And, uh, and we just became fast friends and the chemistry was automatic. And CBS used us both in the booth for some NFL games as well as in the studio. So we got plenty of work time together at both venues. And uh, after I got to Fox for that one year, uh, and Joel got bumped up to work with Gus Johnson. When the question came my way, and, I've, and I should credit Fox, they're the best people I've ever worked for, uh, they asked me my opinion. They said, is there anyone that, that, that you would love to see us look at? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> I, said, I just so happened to know Spencer's contract is up. You might want to give him a call. And uh, they did, and, and they consummated a deal, and and we've been together ever since. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm about eight years older than Spencer. I'm 66. I think he just turned 58, but we're contemporaries, you know, we, uh, and, and we, we have those commonalities, uh, and what we don't have in common, we, we listen and learn from one another. I think we're open to whatever the, the plight of the other guy is, you know, what's going on, that's affecting your life. I want to hear what that is. Uh, my self-awareness, John, I, I'm, uh, my self-awareness was never as good as it probably needed to be uh, on my way up, you know, on the journey. Um, I always thought it was okay, but there were areas where I probably needed to hear some difficult truths. And, uh, and Spencer delivered some of those. Uh, and I think on the flip side, I think there have been times when I've counseled him 
uh, as a big brother might, okay, about the business, things that you need to think about uh, that were beneficial to him. So uh, every honor that's come my way and every honor that's come his way, we've been there for one another. Um, and I think that we've each extended one another's careers uh, because we, we enjoy being with one another so much. Uh, and our, our broadcasts are so well received, people like seeing us together. And, and uh, over time, that really plays well. If you, if you view the business as a marathon, not a sprint, uh, having a relationship with someone like that uh, is very important. I, I've talked to many a great broadcaster through the years uh, that have been at it for a long time, and people wonder how much longer they're going to do it. Well, how much longer you're going to do it probably depends on how much fun are you still having with the people you do it with. And uh, we have a lot of fun together, and I think that's the key. Tim, before we finish up today, last question. What's the funniest moment you've been a part of in your career? <laughs> well, that first game I did way back in 1971, you should identify with this. I'm thinking you're a young fellow. When did you know you wanted to be a broadcaster? How old were you when you knew? 13 you or 14. To... Okay. All right. yeah. So imagine, imagine a 14-year-old All right, with his first broadcast coming. And you're driving to the high school stadium, which looks like, you know, a Super Bowl stadium because it's your first high school football game. You're going to be carrying some equipment up to your booth. And my dad is driving and we're on our way to the game. And it suddenly occurred to me that uh, this is my father I'm going to be on the air with. Now, we had done my dad had a band and we used to tour sack bases together when we were kids. When I was a kid, he was a young man. But uh, he put me on the stage singing and dancing and playing the drums with the band when I was five, six, seven, eight years old. So I was forced into the public eye. He put me there. I had to survive. And I did, and I loved it. But this is now going on the radio to broadcast a, a game about kids playing that are a hell of a lot more important. Focus is not on us. The focus is on the team and the, the moms and dads of the, of the players that are playing the game. And so as we're driving up, I'm, I've got my depth charts ready to go and I'm, you know, I'm prepared, I'm ready, but I'm a little bit quiet and subdued in the car. My dad picked up on that and he said, uh, son, are you all right? And I said, yeah, dad, I'm, I'm okay, I guess. And he says, well, what, what do you mean you guess? Uh, what's, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, just driving here, it occurred to me, it's been on my mind a little, but. It's really kind of bothering me now. He said, what? I said, uh, well, listen, everybody's going to know when they're listening to the, the game that I'm your son. I said, I, I get that. People are going to know that this is Hub Brando's son. My father's name was Hub, short for Hubert. And he said, yeah, they're going to know that. I said, but at the same time, I don't want to say on the air, dad, I don't want to call you dad. I mean, that's just unprofessional. <laughs> And it's embarrassing, frankly. <laughs> he, said, he started laughing, chuckling, kind of like I am now. And he was like, oh, son, look, I get it. I understand that. Not a problem. Look, you can call me by my first name. Look, just do that. I was like, oh, man. I felt so much better. It was like a <laughs> cleansing moment. Okay. And, and I said, well, thanks, Dad. I really appreciate that. Because I'd never called him anything but Dad. So, but now you got to remember, I'm a 14 year old kid. What 14 year old kid that always had to call his dad, dad, and respect all the time, wouldn't take advantage of being able to call his dad by his first name. I listen back to that tape every now and then. And I don't believe I started one sentence without saying, well, you know, hub, uh, what happened? On <laughs> About midway through the first quarter we had commercially says. Son, you know, you really need to back off on the hub stuff. Just, just say what you're just say what you're thinking. Okay. Just say what you see. And at one point, honest to God, I did after he told me that, uh, we're coming out of a break and there's this big play, uh, like a 60-yard touchdown pass. And again, I I was 14. I was prepared and really professional when I was uh, calling the play-by-play -play in the second half. I did the color in the first half. 
and we switched spots and I would call the play by play in the second half. He wanted me to have the most exciting moments. So, and, and to get comfortable, you know, to get comfortable on the air, I needed to probably not do play by play to open the game. So uh, this big play happens and, and he calls it. And then I, and I just blurt out, dad, did you see that? (laughs) 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 And about the time, about the time I said that, the the, the, the uh, iPad flipped on me there. By the time I said that, uh, he he hits me with a his elbow in my in my uh, solar plexus, and I almost lost my breath falling off the off the stool in the booth. That had to be my most embarrassing moment at the time. But uh, but it was good that it happened early. You know, I got it out of the way in the very first show, and uh, I knew I knew the lay of the land after that, and was. Uh, good to go. So most of America didn't see it or hear it, but it's a moment I'll never forget. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Great insight, great stories as well. Looking forward to hearing you this college football season on Fox with Spencer Tillman. Well, thank you very much. I wish you continued success. If I can ever be of any help, let me know. Great talk there with Tim Brando. That'll do it for us today here on Sports Talk Chicago. Big thank you to Tim Brando himself, Matt Dubiel, WCKG, Jim DeTalbin, to Marlboro Entertainment for making this show a success. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Johnsy Sports and on Facebook at Johnsy Glue. You can watch more of this show. Search up Sports Talk Chicago, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, SportsTalkChicago.com. Another great show comes away tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. Till then, stay safe. So long, everyone.